Welcome back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is Wes Corwin, a comedian from Texas. He started doing stand-up about nine years ago at the University of Texas, spent some time in Memphis, then he came back to become the best comedian in Dallas and the funniest comedian in Texas in 2018. I guess it's okay. We talked about those awards, how he got them, and then shared audible love letters for Conan O'Brien. Just in case Conan's listening. He he does. No one's told me that, but I believe he does. And uh, that's what gets me through the day. So butt out. I'm said butt out in like 30 years. All right. <laughs> this one was a lot of fun. Wes is going to headline the On the Zoom comedy show on Saturday, May 8th at 8 p.m. He'll be there with William Sports Yeti Kiersnowski and Dwayne White from Northern Virginia. Tickets are just 5 bucks through Eventbrite or Venmo at Mike Peters Comedian. Or you can sign up for the Patreon, too, and get every show we've done on Zoom for just 5 bucks a month. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Peeling back my sunburnt skin I'll wait outside your bedroom I, I hope they let me in Appreciate you being here. Absolutely. You're in Texas, right? I am, well, I'm living in Stillwater, Oklahoma. I'm a Texas-based comic. The second okay, okay. stages come back, I'm going to head back there. So Texas is open now. I mean, are, are going to get open. Does that mean you're going to do comedy live again? Man, I don't know. I, I, I'm very, I'm nervous because I don't, you know, I, I don't trust Greg Abbott. I don't think he knows. <laughs> I don't think he picked this with comedians in mind. So I don't, you don't think I, so. I'm sh- never. I never, okay. I, there, I don't think there's a world where he's gunning for the comedy vote. So I feel like we're, uh, whatever happens to comedy. Uh, I don't feel like it's happening on the same timeline as everything else does. No, I'm in New York and we're like, I don't know, I'm still doing an open mic. It's kind of like <laughs> there for everybody to see, but nobody cares. Like nobody's paying attention to us. So, mm. you know, uh, we're being as safe as possible. But like, I know that, you know, our cases are down. If somebody said, hey, you can do comedy shows tomorrow, I'd do them. You know, I, I, I yeah, it's been a year. I, I just, you know, I'm getting so restless. I think if I were in Texas, I mean, obviously the cases are up or whatever. That's something. But, man, I would just be excited. But, yeah, cautiously optimistic, probably. I will admit I have take like I've gotten the first vaccine and that's good. Oh, good. I have started dipping my toe back into taking bookings live. And I am uh, terrified of what that the, I, I was taking shows near the beginning of the pandemic because I'm an idiot. And just the only reason I stopped, I would have kept doing it, like taking work when it came in, because I was still getting some level of offers, not as many, but some. But the only reason I didn't was every time I would show up to a club in May or June, they would be like, hey, we're doing this much capacity. We're only letting this number of people in. And they would exceed it every single time. And I was like, I'm contributing to the problem. I need to stop doing comedy for a while, Uh, figure out some other way to do it, because this is not. I'm not helping anybody. Well, at a certain point, like you see, you know, the, these big name comics, you know, DL Hughley, like, mm-hmm. like they get sick and you don't want to be the news story. No, you don't want to be like the same way DL Hughley passed out on stage. You never want to be the guy that passed out on stage. Right. That's never, never a good look. No, unless like maybe like TJ Miller will use it as a bit or something like that. Like, oh, sure. You know, that'll be actually like, you know, 15 minutes of his, you know, hour on HBO. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he, uh, I mean, you know, no matter what controversy, it all just becomes 
the main bit. I think Richard Pryor, when he wrote, when he made it famous, the bit about himself being on fire, it became whatever your controversy is. You just open the special with that and you're good. Everybody's cool with it. Well, I think right after that, Carlin came back and Mm -hmm. he's like, he had a second heart attack. And he goes, uh, I think it was something like Richard had a heart attack. I had a heart attack. Richard blew himself up with crack. I had another heart attack. Something like that. <laughs> okay, now it's yeah, competition. Yeah, yeah. But I, I always liked how how a comedian like Carlin and Pryor or whatever, they can open up the set with something that you kind of like. I mean, you do expect a little bit of that. Like, okay, reference it quickly. But like, mm-hmm. you know, when Carlin opens up with an abortion joke, it's like, oh, shit. Here's where we are tonight. Like, everybody is on that level. You know, that's mm-hmm. that to me has always been impressive. That is, yeah, no, there's a, there's a, there's a bravery to that. And there's something, I think it's the only way to proceed is to immediately set the tone for the audience. Uh, if you come in too soft, I think they develop expectations and then, uh, hate to see you. I don't, I don't know what it is, but yeah, no, I think, I think if you're going to do what Carlin did smart to get it out of the way at the beginning and just let everybody know, Hey, Leave now if you're not down. Get out of here. <laughs> I know. I opened up a show. And now there's a huge difference between George Carlin, who's a legend, and Mike Peters, who was on stage at that point for three years. So I was at a show. It was a small show. Maybe the second. No, it was the first show we did at this venue. And mm-hmm. I opened the host show. I mean, I'm hosting the show. I opened with, I think the line was something like, it was really early. I think we should be allowed to hunt people at Walmart. Sure. Yeah, you know, and and some people were on board, but the others were like, I don't know. And like, I mean, three or four weeks later, I, I don't know, maybe it was in Texas, but mm-hmm. somebody was, I mean, it could have been any fucking state, but somebody was actually shot in a Walmart. So oh I'm like, God. oh, I can't use that bit anymore. So thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, but I, I know a buddy of mine like, yeah, that didn't go over so well. Maybe you should try to, you know, hide that a little bit and don't open with murdering people inside of a Walmart. It's mm-hmm. like, all right. Fair enough. I don't know. I feel like to some degree, as much as you can window dress the joke, I, I, I have to. Did you watch that? Uh, the documentary about the Dana Carvey show on Hulu? That is so funny. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, too funny to fail. Yes. I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. But the the, the comment Robert Schmeigel made uh, when talking about the like as much as you can put window dressing to soften it up. If you want the audience, like I, ideally what we're all doing is we want the audience to laugh at the joke, just present it as concretely and clearly as possible. And it's something like I put a whole lot of uh, statistics at the beginning to explain whatever weird comment I'm about to make. It's from, like, And it's something that I think I need to break the habit of and just be like, hey, here's the dumb thing I think here. And then we'll we'll walk through it together, you and I, instead of having to get through all this justification because they're, they're uh, if it, if the point is that it's absurd they'll laugh at the absurdity i th- i think but uh, i don't know i've been doing it uh long enough to know that i don't know shit about anything so <laughs> well okay so so i just saw you recently on a zoom show and uh, i thought you were hilarious and and so i appreciate you doing this and i i mean it's just a lie it's what i say <laughs> to everybody but when did you start doing comedy i started in uh 2011 okay 19 years old uh i was in i was okay so i was this was sophomore year of college i had been going to ut austin Uh, i was in dallas uh with family i decided to over the summer break go to open mic for three weeks and then when i came back to austin i discovered oh there's an even bigger comedy scene in austin i'll just keep going up 
and not really try that hard in electrical engineering classes. And <laughs> I did hurt my GPA, didn't really care, just kept doing comedy. And I did that for four or five years. Then I moved to Memphis for a year with my first job. I was One exciting thing that I was very happy to learn was no matter what level of city you move to, there's, uh, there's like a collection of 40 or 50 people that think they're going to turn it into a comedy city. So you can really just bounce around wherever and do comedy and just keep doing it. Are the scenes kind of the same? I mean, like... I was always told, and I, th- I think, like, I've talked to so many people, that you could find the same types of people at every scene. Like, oh, you absolutely. can't hide. I, I think there are small cultural, like, uh, one thing that is, like, I think the groups are different. I think if you had a group of Dallas comics and a group of Memphis comics and a group of Austin comics, you'd all, you, in the same way you'd be like, oh, hey, these people do this and these people do that and these people. But the exactly like you're describing, you can look at the individuals in the group and go, oh, there's the guy that does one-liners and thinks uh, he's the next Mitch Hedberg. Oh, there's the guy that does weird performance art stuff. Oh, there's the guy that does... Yeah, no, there's... Uh, it is a fascinating thing that every scene seems to have one of each like archetype that existed at one point in history in abundance, like a nature preserve. Like you, you've got to keep <laughs> one in each city, otherwise they're going to go extinct. You got to. That's them. a fantastic way to put it. <laughs> Comedians are so fucking weird, and like obviously we're we're in there, but yeah, there's always like I'll go to a you know like Rochester, New York, and it's, it's two and a half hours from me, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm not going to see the crazy person in Binghamton anymore. No, I'm going to meet the crazy person in Rochester. Like we all have one comedian at least who might be a sex offender. You don't know. Like, like <laughs> it's like, like there's an arc all the, over the place. It, it's crazy. And mm-hmm. it's like, uh, like no scene is completely clear. We only have, I, I don't know, on a healthy year in a time, we probably have 20, 25 people in the Binghamton area. And then I'm next to Syracuse and Ithaca and Scranton, tons of towns. So like, all together, though, we probably have 150. I mean, mm-hmm. it we're and that might be might be low, might be high. I don't know, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, we're we're in like seven or eight pockets, and they're the same all over the place. Yep, there is one thing, and I I, I want to be clear because uh, I feel like people get very touchy. In no way am, am implying A to B. One of these people stole from the other, but as I mentioned, I moved from Austin to Memphis. And as I was leaving Austin, as I was like uh, interviewing for this job, one comic uh, who was on Kimmel a couple years ago, Martin Urbano, was living in Austin at the time. And he was doing this whole bit. Hey, I'm running for mayor. Here's my platform that I'm running as like. And I I thought it was a great bit. I get in the car. I drive to Memphis. My very first mic. There's a Memphis comic. And he's doing this bit about how he's running for comptroller. And here's his platform for running for comp. <laughs> It, but a couple months before a comedian had brought up like, is it like, and I, I don't know if I agree with the sentiment, but the sentiment was like, isn't it weird how you can't, it's impossible for you to write anything original. Like someone out there has written exactly what you're thinking. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true. But then I saw that and I was like, eh, maybe, maybe there's no conceivable way to write any completely original. Maybe you just got to be there first. Maybe you just got to have it recorded, put it online, and then whenever anybody else says it, they'll comment under, hey, this guy said it first. Well, in Binghamton, we actually had a couple of years ago, a Binghamton University student, she was like 21, she actually mm-hmm. ran for mayor. She put in mm-hmm. paperwork, I think, uh, she had mm-hmm. a story written about her, and then she got she got negative comments on 
uh, website, uh, the newspaper's oh. website. She came to mm-hmm. me and she goes, is that legal? Can they actually say that? I go, yeah, you idiot. I you mean, dink. Could, yeah. You're, <laughs> you're now a mayoral <laughs> candidate. What do you think was going to happen? And and uh, I, she pulled out pretty quickly. But it's like, uh, that wasn't a bit. And I'm like, please tell me it's a bit. That would have been the funniest thing you've ever done. But no. <laughs> no, she really wanted to be mayor. Yeah. You, I mean, some people don't understand what it's like to be a, a public figure, I guess, and don't realize the second you put yourself on that platform, you open yourself up to any level of criticism at any intellectual. Uh, yeah, that's going to happen. Did you have a pretty big scene at Texas, like the university? I mean, uh, like, because I would assume that uh, I went to a small school. And I'm uh-huh. thinking like Texas is huge, Texas uh, you know, from big. all the from all the pictures I've seen and the championships <laughs> I've seen them win. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So I mean, was there like a comedy club? I mean, uh, you know, organization on school. Uh, so there, I mean, there was a improv troupe at UT Austin that I did not attempt to get into, did not try to get into. There was a Cap City Comedy Club. And there was the Velveeta Room, uh, one of which uh, in the, on the heart of Sixth Street, just this odd like hallway bar that had been turned into a uh, comedy room. Love the like it, it's the width of a hallway, and they just set up like five rows of chairs. It seats about fifty people, and I love the entire vibe of it. Uh, that was really where. I started really trying to do comedy and then Cap City, which is the room in town. It's where, where the headliners come to play. And that is, that's Austin. Uh, those are the only two clubs in Austin. Uh, for a while I live when I lived in, okay. So if we're specifically talking about Texas, uh, it is interesting that Austin, I think is a pretty big metroplex and only has two clubs. Cause then you drive three or four hours up the road to, Dallas, and they have uh, three clubs called Hyenas, two improv clubs, and a number of offshoot singularly owned. Like the Hyenas is a chain, the improv is a chain, and then you've got like uh, owned by still working comedians like Backdoor Comedy Club and Comedy Arena. So it's overloaded. Like the Metroplex, uh, the DFW Metroplex is filled to the brim with venues. And then Austin, you have two and then a ton of like coffee shop open mics and uh, improv theater open mics. Uh, it's very, very different. And it's interesting. Like, uh, I think uh, somewhere in the middle is the San Antonio scene, which has, I think, three or four comedy clubs and a smaller number of weird offshoot spaces. No, Texas is full of comedians and a lot of clubs, ton of clubs. And Austin is that's the one's growing, right? I mean, isn't Rogan down there? And and uh, Rogan, a lot of money's going Rogan's there. down there. Elon Musk is down there. Creek in the Cave just said that they're moving from New York, yeah, to Austin. So that'll be interesting. That'll be something. So is that where you're going back to Austin, right? I I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I think. <laughs> It's a it is a great scene. I like the comics a lot. Uh, I some of my favorite people uh, I met first working in Austin. It's interesting. Uh, the kind of here, here's what I will say is I think that Dallas people and Dallas is where I've I've been most recently. Dallas is probably the community I feel the most connected with right now. Dallas comics tend to be incredibly friendly, incredibly networky, and are down to work with anybody. Austin people 
in general tend to be a little bit more standoffish and want to get like a feel for who you are first. And that's totally fine. I just don't, I, I don't have the time. I like to meet you and be like, Hey, great to meet you. You want to be on my podcast and right, then right. just proceed forward. Is that like a hipster type thing? Like they're, it like- might be, I think it's both a hipster thing and like a very cautious, like, I don't want to have you, I don't want to have you in my sketch troupe. And then two weeks later, uh, you post something on Facebook and now no one wants to work with you. That's a, right, right. I think, I think that's a thing that comes up uh, much more frequently in Austin than anywhere else. Yeah. It, do you think it's comparable to like a, like a Portland or, you know, yes. a, a scene like, okay. Okay. I've heard a, I've heard many direct parallels between Austin and the Portland scene. So Dallas, I, I you know, uh, not to throw all your credits at you at once, but you're what Dallas comedian of the year, or Texas comedian of the year by the funniest observer? comedian in Texas, best comedian in Dallas. Uh, two, one, one is something that you win a comedy contest for, and one is something the newspaper just tells you you are. So, I, but I did get both of them. You can't take it away from me as much as which, you might. Which want means to. more? Uh, uh, so okay. I like them both, and they're both fun to put on an EPK or in a. So, uh, if I'm getting into it, uh, the contest felt better because it was something where I performed, and then they handed me a trophy. And if after every set, someone could walk on stage and hand me a trophy, <laughs> oh, I would, I would recommend it. If you, if you, if if you're ever uh, just rapping with a set and somebody can present you a trophy, do it every time. The newspaper award to be, uh, it, it was something that was explained to uh, there at the time. There was a uh, writer for the Dallas Observer. He was covering the comedy beat, and he's also a comic. And he approached me at a mic and was like, hey, just so you know, you're winning this award. And I was like, oh, oh, that's awesome. And he was like, yeah. So I was in this. uh, We were in this room. We were announced like because it's part of the Dallas Observer best of this year. And they were talking about best comedian. And everybody in the room was like, hey, what about this person? And he mentioned that person hasn't done comedy in like three years. Don't give it to them. And they were like, oh, okay, who should we give it to? And I said, Wes Corwin. And they were like, okay, so that's how you won this award. And I was like, great, perfect. I'm super, thank you. Thank you so much. So I worked in a newspaper for, I mean, many of them for about nine, 10 years and you know, two more, three more at college. But that's kind of how it works. I did sports and before the season would come out, we had a guy who said, okay, well, this guy is going to go pitch at Maryland. You know, mm-hmm. so he he should, you know, watch out for him. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. that one writer, you know, who covered Navy sports didn't watch one high school game all year. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the minute we were talking about our all county, he says, well, you got to put him on because, you know, he's going to Maryland. And like, dude, he missed 10 games. He was mm-hmm. injured and his ERA is like over five. And he goes, yeah, but still he's going to Maryland. <laughs> it's like, dude, that doesn't matter. Like it has no it is no difference like it, how about we put on the kid who you know i don't know struck out 112 people and had a one two four era but that happens all the time because they're thinking oh well these credentials mean something or i saw him three years ago and he threw a no hitter like mm-hmm. you know he was really funny three years ago the last time i walked out of this office and into a comedy club must be him mm-hmm. so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad i'm glad you had actually somebody who knew his shit to stick up for you oh yeah 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 and that that writer has since moved to L.A. So of course. that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> now you're sort of the sort of the meritocracy of the situation is if you're good at your job, you will eventually move to L.A. So right. 
that's how that goes. But you know what? Um, are you a baseball fan at all? I like baseball. Okay, good. So I always thought that the and this goes a little bit Texas too, but I always thought the one of the hardest awards to win is the Gold Glove. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if you you know best defensive first baseman, let's say. And I remember Rafael Palmero won a Gold Glove. He was a good fielder, but I think he ended up winning three. And the third one, he only played like 16 games in the field. Mm. And because he had won the past couple of years, I was like, ah, let's give it to Raphael again. And it's like, mm. once you get the first one, you're good, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe that writer can go wherever he wants. You've already got your award. So maybe you're the default next time. I, if that's the case, I have won the award for the last three years. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it says about the Dallas Observer since I won it. But they haven't announced a best comedian in 2019 or 2020. Or I, yeah, I think I, I'm assuming they won't in 2021. So I've just been reigning champion uh, in perpetuity, and I'm very That's glad good. to have to have officially accepted it on this podcast. <laughs> this isn't exactly the same thing, but when my one of my girlfriends broke up with me for a woman, and I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I just ruined men for her. Like, you know, she's <laughs> like, she's like, well, you know, I can't do better than Mike, so. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, you you ruin comedy awards for everybody. They they can't do better than West. So what the hell's the point? Why we we can no longer elevate the game. So we just got to stick with just got to leave it dot 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 out there forever. <laughs> Were you always like the funny friend in the group? No, 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 no. Uh, the fact that I was doing comedy was something my parents were deeply concerned about. They were like, uh, they thought this might be a cry for help because uh, uh, when I was. Uh, when I first told uh, my dad that I wanted to, Hey, I'm going to go drive to an open mic. He was very concerned and relatively discouraging, uh, for rational reasons. He was like, well, you don't have jokes. Like, why would you, you don't, what what are you going to say? And I presented like, Hey, I'm going to do this. And he was like, okay, what what are you going to do after that? And I was like, I don't know. I'll figure it out. And he's like, you don't have jokes. Here's what you're going to do. And he was like, you're going to wait, wait a week. And we'll, uh, your mother and I, and your sister, we'll drive out there, and we'll go watch you. And then, oh, you'll have a, a guaranteed crowd. Won't that be fun? And then, uh, uh, so let's do that instead. And I was like, I'm going to get the car, and I'm going to drive. I'm going to go do open mic comedy. And uh, I went, performed, did it for three more weeks, and then did it, uh, moved back to Austin, did it for years after that. And it wasn't until I won the award that there was even a level of like, oh, okay, I get slightly before that they came to a show of mine and they were like, okay, something it's coming together for you. That's good. But uh, for a long time, uh, there were questions about like, hey, are you sure this isn't like a long four year phase for you? Are you sure this is? And I was like, no, yeah, I'm doing this. This feels good. And they were like, great. We just wanted to check. I remember this is uh, my dad had asked uh, if I if everything was going okay. Just want to make sure you know your your future is all set. Are you all you know? Uh, obviously, referring to me getting a job after college uh, related to electrical engineering. After which, I told him that I was working on a joke about orange juice, and then did the <laughs> joke. And uh, my dad didn't laugh. My girlfriend at the time who became my wife was like, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Not the joke, but the look on his face going from very concerned parent to having no reason to believe in you whatsoever was. (laughs) When I told my parents, they're they're both teachers and, you know, they're retired. They have pensions. They have 
had enough money to raise four kids and cover for their four kids when they needed money. And I mean, they mm-hmm. had all the security and houses paid off everything. I told my dad, I'm going to try comedy. He goes, uh, what's 401k like? And I was like, well, <laughs> I was like, oh. like, and I had money saved, but he's like, no, that's not, that's not good. And I'm like, and I completely understand. It wasn't until I started making money on the production side where, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, okay, well I can, I can run all these shows and that's how I'll make some money. And, and yeah, I'll get stage time as well. So when I started paying rent with comedy mm-hmm. money, he's like, oh, it's actually a thing. So yes. I'm okay I, with this. So somehow it is a lot easier to pitch. And I, I, I experienced something very similar. It's a lot easier when your parents stop thinking like, oh, he's an artist. Once they're like, oh, he's a small business owner. Okay, great. Yeah. Do whatever you want. Yeah. That is imme- That's the switch that needs to get flipped is the second you have like T-shirts you're selling out of the back of your car or once you have like, hey, a theater is coming up and I'm getting this, they immediately, oh, okay, great. You're, yeah, fine. Do whatever. Yeah. I remember I mm-hmm. opened for Gilbert Gottfried because who hasn't? And <laughs> so I told my dad, I always say it's a rite of passage for a comedian. Mm-hmm. And I told my dad about it and he goes, oh, that's great. And I like I saw the twinkle of pride in his eye. And I'm like, all right. So when I found out that everybody had done it, basically, I was like, well, I can't tell him that part. Like, like, you know, like, I'll just let him think that, you know, oh, Mike was handpicked for this. Like, no, Mike, Mike was one of five openers that night. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no, don't, don't worry about him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gilbert got from, but I mean, from his perspective, he's got to be, oh my God, Gilbert got, Mike is going to be part of like Aladdin four when it comes out. This is the dream he's doing. This is. You know, matter. I, I mean, I have a show. One of the dates I've picked up. One of my favorite clubs, the Grove in uh, Lowell, Arkansas, has asked me if I can open for Chris Catan when he's coming through. Oh, town. right. And obviously, uh, you and I know how silly this show is going to be. But if I told my dad that, he would think, "Oh my God, he's made it. This is it. This is this right. is the culmination of everything. This is he was everything." An SNL. Like, yeah, Chris what, probably what knows else? everybody to hook us up. Yep, this is it. This is this is the all right. Uh, you'd probably be calling to ask to go over my time and make sure that uh, all the materials is. T- he would think this was my late night five would be opening for Chris Kattan, and it's just going to be fun. It's just going to be good. Well, you've opened for a bunch of good people. I mean, is there anybody for you? You know, as the comedian, mm-hmm. who is the comedian mm-hmm. that really told you, "Hey, you know, this is this is legit. Like, like I'm on the right path here." Uh, one person that I, I had two experience, I've never had somebody take me aside and say much to me after opening for them. I will say I had three positive experiences that make, that I think back on and they make me very happy. One of which I got to open for Kurt Braunohler while I lived in Memphis, Kurt Braunohler from Bob's Burgers and Adult Swim and stuff like that. And not a ton of big headliners come in through Memphis uh, and when they do, they do alt venues. There's not like a club club. There's uh, Chuckles, which entertains uh, usually C-list acts. They will sometimes lock down like Sinbad is their peak. That's right. the top. And then uh, most of the time it's uh, regional headliners. And one time a venue called Rock House Live secured uh, Kurt Braunohler. And the two things uh, that I got from featuring for him getting to do uh, 25 minutes before his set was uh, the booker walked up to me after my set to let me know that Kurt had laughed at my closer harder than anything he had for the wow. rest of the openers. And I was like, hell yeah. And afterward, uh, Kurt walked up and shook my hand. 
uh, just as he was leaving. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't expect it. He's a dad. He's not going to hang out all night with the openers. But he did uh, make a point to walk up and said, hey, loved it. And then got his bag into his hands and cut out. And that felt that that was a lot. That felt good. The other thing that ha- oh, I was doing a show in San Angelo, Texas, and this was hell. Uh, I'm very quickly uh, just going to run through. It was a young man. He was a comedian in San Angelo. It was his, th- uh, he booked a show for his 30th birthday. Uh, he had hit up a bunch of people that he'd worked with in the past, myself included, and just been like, hey, what's a, what's a quote? What would you want if you came to San Angelo? And he didn't explain. I don't know how experienced he was booking shows. So he wasn't, he didn't go over, hey, you're not the headliner. How much would it cost to book you for? Right. 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So everybody gave him, I think, their headliner rate. And he was just like, great, I'll pay it. And subsequently no got all of these. Yeah, no. Uh, so he booked uh, me. He booked a awesome comedian named Pat Saroy. He booked a Houston comedian named Ku Agente. And he booked Shane Torres, who has been on Conan twice. Yeah. Hilariously funny, dude. I think the full budget for the show, because he didn't negotiate or explain the circuit, was like $2,500. And he was oh selling God. tickets for 10 and about 30 people showed up. And that was that was a disaster. That's, How do you that's think he was going to get any money back? Well, I'm not going to speculate. Uh, I, I know that uh, at the end of the night, his father had to go to an ATM and pay us out of his account, to which <sighs> I still still don't feel good about. Also, I drove five hours to San Angelo to do money, and I also hit a deer on the way back, so karma already got me. So oh, there you go. Yeah. Nothing, yeah, I don't feel that bad because I was already retributed upon. But uh, <laughs> Shane, Shane Torres closed with 45 minutes in front of 30 people, made it feel fantastic, and he made a point to, after the show, uh, meet me. Like he, he walked up to my car, and he did a little knock on the window, and he told me, hey, set was fantastic if you're ever in new york feel free to hit me up and that felt really good nobody's been like hey let me break down comedy the closest thing uh recently and by recently i mean a year ago before the pandemic i was opening at the addison improv and i was opening for godfrey not gilbert godfrey yeah yeah godfrey godfrey the closest thing i've gotten to any kind of counseling was i was talking shop with godfrey after the show and he was like how long have you been doing it and i told him uh, about eight years at the time. And he was like, oh, you're a baby. None of your opinions mean anything. And then he just <laughs> spent some time telling me how comedy worked. And that felt more legitimizing than most of the, like, I, I don't know. I, I enjoy like a little bit of, I, I enjoy a slight noogie with any advice I receive. I don't get a ton from like, hey, you're the future. I enjoy just like, hey, good stuff. And then somebody who just unloads all their valuable information on me and I can take it and I can uh give him a salute do you look at something with like godfrey and shane torres it's like oh you know whenever i'm in new york like do you see that and it's like well maybe i belong in new york maybe i belong in la i don't i man i i've thought about it the tough thing is i'm married so no, that's I, 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 yeah. I, yeah if I, I i've talked about it in terms of going to la and I'm very fortunate that my wife is an environmental sociologist and the dream job for an environmental sociologist is in los angeles so if those dots ever connect, I think that would work out for both of us. But also we kind of, I mean, I we, we're on the hook for an amount of student loan debt that might only increase as things go on. So I don't know. I uh, One thing that I feel, and I, I do believe it, is 
I feel like as time goes on, opportunities are going to become much less geography based and more digitally based. I was super excited. They don't do this anymore and it breaks my heart. But Adult Swim was doing their development show meeting uh, video stream where anybody could just call in to Adult Swim and pitch their show. And I had been like uh, working on a script for a while. And then HBO Now and Time Warner came in and killed their entire streaming department. But I do feel like it's only inevitable that those avenues are going to be replaced by people basically willing to utilize these channels instead of moving there. I feel like especially with uh, remote work converting so completely to Zoom, it's only going to be inevitable that more and more comedy opportunities take place completely independent of geographic availability. Well, I know like Full Frontal is completely remote. I mean, most of those late night shows are. So mm-hmm. I would think so. How were you able to adjust from from doing stand up from, you know, live and in person to Zoom? Obviously, I'm sure your income took a hit. Oh, I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I've lost. I, 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 I will say I'm, I'm very lucky in that I have maintained a day job through this. I know comedians that have been like, and, and it's an important thing. A lot of people have been were amidst the pandemic. People were like, "Hey, I'm taking this show," and then people would post under on Facebook like, "Way to contribute to the." But if comedy is your sole source of income, and the only thing you had to your name was a twelve hundred dollar check near the beginning, you're going to run out of money. You got to take. You got. You got to work. You got to do what you got to yeah. do. I'm very lucky that I had an alternative means and also the funds necessary to get a Zoom account and start doing some Zoom content. In terms of what I've lost, it's, I mean, I definitely don't have the volume of work I was before the pandemic. And it sucks, especially, uh, at the, as, as I mentioned, I was getting a low volume of people hitting me up in June and July and still being like, hey, great news, we're doing this show, if you want to come do it. And as I mentioned, clubs just kept exceeding their own guidelines. And I was like, I will, please let me hit you up when things are calmer, because I would still love to work for this club, just not while we're looking at hundreds of thousands of cases a day. And I'm very thankful no one was like, you will never, they were just like, yeah, of course, just please let us know when things open back up for you. In terms of the comedy itself, it's been super fun working on Zoom, if only because I have very muted facial features. Like I do a lot of big act outs on stage, but nobody can see my face. And it's interesting because I've discovered when you're Zooming, people can catch all the different little facial muscles. Zoom, I, I when people have asked me if they should start doing Zoom, I have told them that I think the most valuable thing about Zoom is it is an environment where every single audience member has a front row seat and they get all the little nuances that usually don't go beyond the five closest people to your uh, stage. And that's good. I miss live performing so, so much, but it's just different. Zoom is good. It's just different. When's the last time you were on stage? May, May at the the same club where I'm opening for at the Grove in Lowell, Arkansas. I did have fun, but I also I don't know. At the time, this was near the beginning when like numbers were looking bad and we didn't know how much worse they were going to get. And at the time, people were saying, hey, 10 people in the crowd. But turns out 10 people included 10 tickets and then people could bring in plus ones. And before you know it, we got 25 in there. And I'm like. Oh, I don't know. I'd rather rather just wait this out. 
what's comedy like in Arkansas? I mean, I have never, I don't think I've met somebody who, like, not up here in New York, who's actually been to Arkansas. I it so I feel, and I mean, this is this is my bread and butter to one degree or another. As I've mentioned, two pla- the places I've lived are Austin, Texas, Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, Dallas, Texas. If you tour in any direction, and usually you tour in places that have less comedy, so you have greater demand. I'm usually touring through uh, Mississippi or Arkansas or before the pandemic, I had a monthly setup in Oklahoma. It's uh, the, the thing that I'm happy to report is if sold correctly, uh, I can tell you, especially near the beginning, I was like, oh, man, I'm going I'm doing a comedy show at this bar in Mississippi. They're going to hate me. Most of the time, especially if it's sold appropriately and put out there, there are comedy fans in any location. The same way that, as we covered, a comedy scene will have archetypes. There are comedy fans that are even in places that are very, very deep red state. Uh, you're going to find people that are like, oh, I just like to like to have fun and I yeah. don't vote the way everybody else does. So that's fine. I will say I had uh, a very harsh awakening. I was working a club in Jackson, Tennessee, and I was at the time I, I was bringing my uh, wife with me uh, to shows because that's the closest we got to vacationing was driving to this club and then hanging out in the evening and then driving back. And uh, she was looking out at this crowd. It looked like the club, which was uh, South Street Comedy Club in uh, Jackson, Tennessee, looked very much like a country bar on the inside, like a Dolly Parton musical. And at the time I was doing, I I did in the middle of my set about five minutes of political jokes. And she like leaned in at the table we were sitting at before the show and was like, hey, maybe cut the political stuff. Because you like, I don't know if they're going to appreciate stuff about Trump. You've got some punchlines where Trump is the punchline, just flip it. Just make it about Hillary Clinton for like a couple minutes. Uh, They're not going to know the difference. And I'm like, I'm an, uh, look, I'm not changing anything. All right. My set is my set. And uh, they truly hated that five minutes. And the funniest, (laughs) they, it's the weirdest thing. This is the thing about crowds in the South. And you can absolutely extrapolate this to crowds in Arkansas is they will love your set. And the second you get off the topic of whatever your political beliefs are, they'll go right back to loving you. They'll just hate like you'll be talking about this and then dip into politics for a second and they'll go silent and you can see them seething. And the second you go back to like, so I was at the Walmart the other day, immediately like, oh, yes, love it. Yes. Perfect. Don't badmouth Tyson chicken. Can't badmouth Tyson chicken. (laughs) Uh, They they will string. Mm -hmm. I did a show at a at a health food place. Like it was a bar, but it was like a healthy, you know, bar and uh, just, just all vegan and, and vegetarian stuff. And I had a, like a five minute run on Taco Bell mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. like the day before or the week before I had won a contest, you know? So here I am with the, with my first trophy. I'm thinking, oh, this is great. This is stuff I'm going to close with. And I, I put it later in the set and didn't close with it just in case, yeah. man, it died. Absolutely died because <laughs> these guys probably hadn't been at Taco Bell in like 20 years. So I'm like, ah, oh, shit. So the producer <laughs> came over. She was like, yeah, I told you. And I'm like, ah, that doesn't help me right now. <laughs> so, so yeah, that that's my political humor. I, I, whenever we go to Pennsylvania, we're guarded on that from New York. And mm-hmm. it's like, cause I don't do a whole lot of politics anyway, just because when I host a show, 
I'm like, well, you know, there's no sense in ha- having people hate me right away and sure. maybe ruining it for the rest of the people. Also, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Kimmel's good at it. Seth Meyers is good at it. Colbert's good at it. I am not. Like, I, I'd much rather, you know, talk about how awful I am. Like, that's, oh. that's more comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, I don't, and you might, you might completely disagree. I'm, I'm exclusively talking about East Coast pros versus West Coast pros. And you might have observed something completely different. And if you have, let me know. But from what I have observed, like the East Coast headliners that tour tend to, on average, do that where they talk about everything. Like it, when you go see them, it's like they summarize the last year of world events for you. And then you go over to the West Coast and it's entirely autobiographical in yeah. terms of like, so this is what I do. This is me. This is who I am. I when I see someone who's like this comic works, all the clubs in New York, they tend to cover like, so beginning of the year, we saw this event and then just goes item by item through like, and then that led to this. And then that led to, I saw, uh, I, uh, one, I was doing the flyover comedy festival in St. Louis, Missouri. And one of the headliners was Emily Galati and she covered, uh, just 12 months of news in about 25 minutes. And it was hysterically funny. And I don't know if this is accurate at all, but I was like, oh, wow, that's yeah, that that feels feels like a very New York comedy vibe based on other New York people I had seen. I wonder if that's more like a competition thing where it's like mm-hmm. everything in New York is so fast and there's so many comedians there. They're trying mm-hmm. to get ahead of people and, you know, write for crowd work or, you know, to engage people right away. And maybe mm-hmm. that's part of it. Or, mm-hmm. you know, they're writing slower on the West Coast. I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. But I... I tend to like the autobiographical stuff because it holds up longer, you know, especially mm-hmm. the last, you know, four or five years. I mean, like, for sure. There are a couple Trump jokes or, yeah, I, I, I don't write a whole lot of political stuff, but like, like when I stopped doing political humor, it was probably like 2018. I just got really tired of it. But oh, yeah. those jokes had like a week shelf life. And I'm like, well, I don't have a Netflix special coming out. Like, so it's not going to do me any good. If I'm not booked that week, I'm fucked. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll worry about, you know, writing a joke about how nobody came to my eighth birthday party. You know, that, yeah. that kind of hurt will stay with me forever. So I can always Absolutely. keep the joke. You could, you know, trauma doesn't have an expiration date. Nobody no, ever no, it doesn't. <laughs> Keeping therapists in business for years. Absolutely. Absolutely. For you, what, what's, the, what's the end goal? I mean, I know, uh, you know, I, I saw you just had uh, animation stuff on Conan. Yeah. And I mean, is that, is that where you want to be? Like, like an animator uh, in that kind of field? I would love, I just want to make a living off comedy, you know, and and it, it feels like it's changing what that, like, I think the more I learn, the more it changes what that looks like. Like when I first started, when I was 19, I was thinking like, oh, I'll just, you know, do this until uh, I'll get a, get a Netflix special, just, you know, however it goes, that's all I'll, I just want to do stand up. And the longer I've gone, the more I've seen even the, even heroes of mine in the industry have to diversify you know, Kyle Kinane, who is my Zoom profile picture, uh, has to, you know, he has to take some voiceover work, voice of Comedy Central. John Mulaney just took a staff writing gig at Seth Meyers and then had to go to rehab. That's going to happen. Uh, That's all part of it. That's all part of it. So I, 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 as, as mentioned, when I saw Conan was doing like an animation, like open submission thing, and I had just started really like playing with this animation application working in that. And I was like, OK, I understand the I have this amount of experience in comedy and I hopefully that makes up for very little experience in animation. Uh, I know how to present something and then 
right turn in a silly way that makes it funny. I'm just going to hope this gets on. And the segment got on. And I have continued animating since then in the hopes that, hey, you know, if I were to be a showrunner on anything, like uh, some adult animation on Adult Swim or HBO Now, I think that's become the new dream. And then if I can parlay that into stand-up, if I could, I would not mind being one of those people that uh, I, when I was a year in, used to think derisively of. Those people that just tour regionally and, uh, you know, draw 30, 40 people in the seats and just seem to be having the most fun. If I could do that, if I could make just enough money to justify doing stand-up for, you know, X months out of the year, that'd be great. I would love that with my whole heart. Yeah, there are people here. I mean, there's a guy who, you know, whatever, he, he lives in Buffalo. And mm-hmm. uh, I can never say the last name, Pete Coriolo, I think, or something like that. But he opens for Regan every once in a while. And, yeah. you know, he's got a Showtime special. And you don't need to live in a on, on the coast to do something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. not, not the city, not, you know, uh, L.A., New York City. Uh, so I think, yeah, like you could always do comedy wherever you are. And I would think that, like, if you had an HBO Max credit or a Conan credit or, you know, Adult Swim, that more people would flock to you anyway just because of that credit. They might not know who the hell you are, but if they see Adult Swim behind you, oh, this guy's got to be good. So yes. let's gamble. That's that's the knock on wood hope. And I do feel, yeah, I bring up Adult Swim just because I feel like the thing that I observed, I, I, I w- first of all, I the, the stream that I mentioned, I, w- I was watching it like obsessively for a while just because uh, one it's a great thing it's a great way to see uh what executives were looking for in terms of a product and as as somebody who's hoping to get stuff on tv it was nice to hear somebody that was giving reasons hey this is fun this is the reason why it won't work this is the reason why we'd never pick it up keep at it and i was able to take and cannibalize whatever advice was given and hopefully transition it into my comedy and try to put a little spit shine on parts that might not glimmer as neatly but uh i do also think it gives you a glimpse into uh what people were thinking directly when you go in the comments box you could see what people were connecting with and what and from what i had seen in terms of the fans that were watching along to get a glimpse into what adult swim might pick up I feel like the biggest comedy fans right now uh, associate with that brand heavily. I feel like they addictively pick things up and really enjoy things that are offbeat and non-traditional. And I think that's it's interesting that in 2021, it's still such a legitimate thing to have a late night credit or seen as such a thing we're aiming for, considering that late night as a format is so incredibly old school and kind of was felt pioneered and mapped out to such an extensive degree around the time of Letterman and Carson. I still love what Conan O'Brien is doing, but I feel like he's the last person really innovating in the game. And most people are kind of reducing back into traditional late night. Conan's going to HBO Max anyway. And it makes me, yeah, on the one hand, that makes the most sense for him because Late Night is a dead platform and he should innovate, as always, the same way he innovated into podcasts, he's doing what he can to stay relevant and he'll stay relevant longer than anybody else. But man, I'm going to, I I, I feel like it's a loss. It's like if the leading ship in in a fleet of ships that are sailing and navigating the and mapping the world, if the best ship goes off into another direction 
it's like yep. it's great that he's doing something new, but also the things we're left with bum me out. Conan is the first late night host. Like I'm 38. He's the first late night host who I thought was for me. And mm-hmm, like, cause mm-hmm, I grew up mm-hmm. on Letterman and Leno and I, and I like Leno. Mm-hmm. I like Letterman, but I never, I mean, I, I'm now seeing the appeal of Letterman, but Conan was like the punk rock of everybody. Yes. And like he was one, he, he brought, I'm a punk rock guy. Like he brought those kind of bands on the show and it's like, yes. nobody else really did that. And I loved his, the year 2000 with Andy Richter and, and all these stupid, the masturbating bear. I mean, like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the shit wasn't going to happen on any show that took themselves seriously. And he didn't take himself seriously at all. He still doesn't. And Mm -hmm. he's fantastic. And his podcast is great. It's one of the reasons I I wanted. It's one of the podcasts I listened to a lot before starting my own. And it's like, Mm -hmm, okay, I mm -hmm. like how he does this. Yes, completely agree. Is he is he one of your favorites? I mean, one of your guys in comedy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. In terms of career trajectory. I love uh, I love that he started as a Simpsons writer. I love yeah. and when you go back and look at the episodes he's written, you're like, oh, cool, all the best episodes. Love it. Season three, season four. Monorail. Yep, yep. Uh, it's one of those things where, when I think about the ideal career, if I, you know, talking about what I'm aiming for in comedy, I mean, uh, to be able to bounce around and do kind of whatever is a big part of my goal and it feels like conan managed to do that is bounce from comedy writer to just hosting his own show to i'll do that do podcasts i'll be in this whatever just uh whatever whatever feels fun at the time i'm gonna do that that feels like a just to the way some people feel about the dalai lama i think that's how i feel about conan in terms of like oh that's 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 the state of zen i'm going for i want that everything you exude that's what i want to exude and it doesn't feel like he has ever changed personally like he has always been Mm self-deprecating just a fucking goofball Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. i watched one thing i think it was this morning where it was from a couple years ago i'm sure but he spied on his staff you know he put a surveillance camera in because he discovered a secret email chain where people could get food first like (laughs) like he, he set up this this fake email from the E network saying, oh, we're, we're having a cake. And he's got that camera going and he busted three people who went in first. And <laughs> and then he comes back, you know, from talking to somebody else. Andy Richter's in there. And they're all like, yeah, we never thought about you. Like, uh-huh. he's like, he's like, why am I not on the list? He's like, this isn't you. So <laughs> it's just the entire anything he does is gold. And mm. I, he strikes me as somebody and I'm sure this isn't the case but does one take and that's it. He just nails it yeah. every time. And mm-hmm, it's just, mm-hmm. it seems like he is the most organically funny person on the planet. Yes. Uh, he just so good. Such, you know, it probably comes from uh, Harvard Lampoon yeah. stuff, but in terms of just incredible delivery on every, just, just knowing exactly how to say whatever ridiculous thing he's saying to make it fun. It's, it's great. Just love it. Were you a big Simpsons fan? I mean, like, obviously, I'm, I'm guessing you like cartoons in that Huge, way. Huge. Here's the interesting thing is, uh, f- and I don't know why this is, but I do. W- we have Disney Plus now, so I've been yeah. obsessively consuming The Simpsons. At the time, 
uh, my uh, parents, uh, my mother specifically, whenever if The Simpsons would come on, she would go like, oh, that's dirty television. You yeah. can't watch that. Uh, and then I wouldn't watch it. But subsequently, then I'd go to my room later at night and catch uh, like Family Guy on Adult Swim. Which is way movies. dirtier. Way filthier. Uh, but for what for just because it was in my own room and she was already asleep. Uh, so subsequently, I uh, still caught plenty of filth and pl- it was still very influenced by animation. But it wasn't until much later when I could really appreciate how ridiculous and incredibly tightly written the jokes were in seasons three through nine i i came to it with an incredibly academic approach that i still think i would have been like this is the funniest show as a kid but watching it now and still having that part of my brain like twitch when i'm like oh my how do you find a way to use like 36 words and make five jokes in here yeah this is incredible and hopefully they fixed it but i know some of the sight gags were off in disney plus and that's how brilliant that show is that they could have a sign on on a store that like is only being shown for maybe a second. Mm-hmm. And they probably spent, I don't know, 15 minutes, an hour creating that, you know, that joke of a store. Mm-hmm. And you, like, I mean, King Toots is one where it's mm-hmm. like they actually went in there and that's an early one. But it's like, mm-hmm. OK, that's that's funny. King Tut, King Toot. And I don't know that that show is so genius. I mean, I still I watch the. The newest one last night. I have a I'm a big Seinfeld fan, and I'm hopefully the I'm the only person in the universe who does this. But I keep a list of all the actors who have made appearances on Seinfeld and The Simpsons. Okay. And like Stephen Root was mm-hmm. on the last episode, and like okay, he just made he made that list, and mm-hmm. they're just The Simpsons are still doing it, and I cannot picture a world in which there is no new Simpsons episode. Oh it, sure. It, it's just you know, like Matt Groening and and that staff. It, it's like <laughs> I, the only way I think they they go away is if all the voice actors die or retire. Unless there's a day the music died situation uh, right. with the entire voice cast all getting on a plane. <laughs> I, there's, I, I'm there's... sure. I'm sure that's <laughs> never gonna happen. Like like they like Harry Shearer and Dan Castellaneta. They cannot fly on the same plane. It just no. like yeah, this the same way that you can't have the president and the vice president at the same place. You can't keep them both just to, just because of the potential security risk to the Simpsons. <laughs> you gotta you gotta have them two separate parts of the country at all times. And the funny thing with that is like a lot of them, especially now, I think most of them have their own sound booths in their houses, mm. so they don't even need to go to the studio. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think uh, Hank Azaria has been doing that for years. Mm-hmm. Cause he's always on Conan. I mean, he, he's, he's on there and, and they'll do, uh, and he'll, he's on the Dan Patrick show. And he, whenever Hank is there is on something, he does like Mo and all these voices. And so he's like, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, takes me no time to record these anymore. So yeah. I'm good for him. I, I feel And yeah, I think that's something that only as we go on, that's going to become more and more of a thing. I think when, uh, this is a, but a, a different late night show, uh, Seth Myers was doing this odd thing where he was doing the news updates and he was doing monologue jokes from like a room in his attic. Yeah. And it would cut back to a painting behind him uh, of an old sea captain and the captain would be talking and it would be played by Will Forte. I feel like that indicates just how many uh, comedians are investing in uh, sound booth technology or just enough technology to be able to still do bits from home. I feel like that's only going to become more and more of a thing. And uh, good. Whatever, whatever helps comics keep the lights on. 
Do you get into like Big Mouth and, and new shows like that? I do like Big Mouth. I think, yeah, pretty much anything with John Mulaney and Nick Kroll I'm going to consume. Absolutely. They're incredible. Uh, I saw Oh Hello on Broadway. And it's, I mean, just as good as it is on Netflix. I mean, it's it's so good. And oh, TJ wow. Miller was the guest on mine. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I got tickets for my mom and my sister. They're big Broadway people. And basically, I like Broadway plays or whatever, but and shows. But I was in the city, you know, trying to do a set here and there. And I'm like, well, fuck it. I know what I'm going to get him for Christmas. I got him tickets on the last day of Oh Hello. And they, they had two shows and I got the matinee and I don't know who they got for the finale. And I'm, I'm like, oh, maybe they're going to get like a two for not that TJ Miller is bad or anything. But like I was kind of hoping for a little bit bigger, like a like a Steve Martin type. And sure, sure, uh, sure. But my God, the jokes those two rattled off. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of that, you know, was done show after show. But I read that a lot of that is new, too. They just come mm. up with it. And I don't know. I, I watch those two guys go back and forth. And I think I can never be a comedian. Like, oh, sure. like you know, it's it's so intimidating to me. And to see them have so much success on, on Big Mouth and they're everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. good for them. But they're fucking monsters. Yeah, no. And it's something that hopefully, you know, the the, the longer you dedicate the, yourself to this art, you can exude it. But the sheer fa- they seem to like emanate jokes like the same way people like sweat some people just exude the spirit of comedy and it feels like they can just do it in any environment it's crazy uh regardless of what goal uh any comedian is going for i'd like to think most likely their goal is mastery of the art form and to see it does feel like Mulaney and kroll are masters of their own games at this point yeah I, i don't think there's a question on that do you remember the worst set you've ever had at a show Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, for sure. I can't forget it as much as I'd like to. <laughs> I was uh I was uh, working the Arlington Improv, which is one of the one of the clubs, uh, famously black club, urban club, uh and I was very excited. This is part of winning Funniest Comedian Texas 2018 is after you win, you get to work both the improvs in the city. And I was very excited. Uh I got to work the Addison. That's when I got to open for Godfrey. Uh, I hosted that one, and this time uh, the planned feature, uh, Guy Tory, uh, who's been on uh, BET, uh, uh, you know, Showtime at the Apollo, all this, yeah. uh, he was going to bring a feature and I was going to host, and then his feature dropped, so they just bumped me to feature and brought in another host. And I was very excited. Uh, I was telling my wife, like, you know, this is – she didn't come uh, to the show. I was just explaining. So this is going to be a little bit different. The reason I'm excited about this is it's a chance to really test my material. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, a lot of audiences at the improv just don't think white people are funny. Yep. Uh, and that that's going to happen. So I'm. Uh, it's going to be a good chance to see what works unconditionally in any crowd and what doesn't. And I'm going to have to really it, it, there's a there's a good chance I'm going to have to stretch outside of my comfort zone to make this weekend work. First show rough. Uh, but I was like, you know, OK, I got one out of the way and now it's only going to get good from here. Uh, and this this the, a very similar thing happened with Godfrey. I want to cover this is I think I'm cursed now if before my set, the same thing happened with Godfrey, where the club uh, manager walked up and was like, hey, Godfrey's running late. Uh, you're going to do five extra minutes. And I was like, oh, OK. So instead of 10, I'll do 15. 
this was only the first night and every other night Godfrey showed up on time. I did my 10. They loved it. And then when I did the extra five, hated me. Uh, and that's just going to ha- like they, they just dropped off completely. I think I don't know, but they could smell on me like, hey, something's not right here. Yeah. And a very, very similar thing happened with Guy Tori, where I was doing 20. And instead of doing five extra minutes, the manager was like, hey, Guy Tori, we don't know where he is. Just keep going. Just until we flash a light at you, just keep going. We'll let you know when he's here and then you can get off stage. So I was like, okay, great. They put 20 minutes on the clock. uh, And uh, when you work the improv, you can, everybody can see there's a timer in the back of the room to indicate how much time you have left in your set. No kidding. It's like a a game. It's it's like a, a lot like a scoreboard and about, and hopefully the crowd doesn't take note of it. But so I was performing. I had the crowd for about two and a half to three minutes uh, where they were where they were vibing just enough to like, okay, I can keep this going. I can keep this ball in the air around five or six minutes in. I feel like I've lost about 40 percent of the room. Some of them are checking their phones. Some of them are like uh, starting to engage in some impolite table chatter, like where they're just talking. And I'm like, okay. I'm just going to keep I'm going to keep playing to who's paying attention and hopefully people will stop around uh, nine or 10 minutes in. I have uh, lost 80 percent of the room. There's a couple tables close to me still looking. And now people are chattering Uh, around 10. I'm like, okay, I've got this set where I really go like all out. I do a ton of act out trying to uh, get people's attention. I'm going to do that. That's going to last me about three minutes. I get to 13 minutes in the set, and I realize as I hit the punchline, the entire room has turned into a cafeteria, where like a a high school cafeteria, nobody's looking at me, everybody's talking, and I've completely lost this room to chaos. And it is at this point, as I get to the end of the joke and nobody laughs, it seems like a light flashes in their minds where they're like, oh, hey, this guy's still on stage. And some of them start uh, gently booing, which this is just a nightmare situation. I'm 14 minutes in. It's at this point I feel compelled uh, to I I start addressing the fact that this is not going well. And (laughs) the one thing I learned that I took with me the rest of the week is, number one, if you don't, if, first of all, I don't know how well you're going to present like, hey, I belong here in an environment like this. So make a point to address at the beginning, hey, I don't belong here. Uh, You know that. And then they'll laugh and a little bit of tension will be cooled down. But they do expect that. It made the later shows much better. But I was still in the thick of it. I just started talking about how uh, awful this was going. I started getting an amount of laughter. And it was at this point, uh, they looked out. Uh, I could tell some people were looking at the clock to see that there were about three minutes left on the clock. And I felt compelled to notify them, hey, just so you know, I've been told Guy Tori isn't here. They don't know where he is. So that clock doesn't mean anything. Stop <laughs> looking at it. And it gets a laugh from a chunk of people, but it also gets an exasperated sigh from a few people. And that's going to, and I just continue to address it, uh, just how bad the set is going. And I'm getting just enough laughs to limp my way across the finish line around. Uh, I also explain in the middle of that until I see a light from the back of the room, 
you're stuck with me and I don't want to be here either. I don't want you to have to deal with me, but we're both here. This is just happening now. Around 24 minutes, I see a flash of light in the back of the room and there is an applause at a level that has not occurred throughout the entirety of the set in terms of excitement, both that Guy Tori is here and to a lesser degree, but still palpable, that I will no longer be performing. <laughs> uh, I offered, if they wanted, since Guy was done, if I could do, I offered to try a closing joke to see if they'd enjoy it. One person in the front said no, and then I proceeded to intro Guy Tori and then get off the stage. <laughs> and Did you then, have a show after that, like the next day? Oh, of course. Uh, this was show oh, two man. out of five. So no, yeah, I was. Uh, I was. This was at a. The, you did Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Two shows on Friday. Two shows on Saturday, and a show on Sunday. So I was. This was the first night. I was still deeply like, oh my god, this is a whole. But I. I uh, one thing, no matter how bad your worst set is, as long as you're actively trying to learn from it, and thankfully, shows three, four, and five went much better. Because I didn't like, you know, I, I could have just gone completely dead in the eyes and just tried to like fake my way through it. But I was like, okay, I took this weekend for a reason. I want to get better. I knew that this was a possibility because this is a, the crowd that I typically perform for. And I wanted to really test the metal of my jokes to see what they'd be into. And now here we go. We're going we're, we're gonna to use this as a building block to make the entire set stronger. And I came out the other side. I'd like to think I came out the other side a better comedian uh, because of how f how deep I failed, how deeply short I came uh, as at the time, the reigning funniest comedian in Texas, which must have been really disappointing uh, to them to be intro to the funniest comedian in Texas and yeah, to eventually boo them uh, off stage. They're probably like, we need to move. Like, <laughs> we need to get out of here. This is the funniest <laughs> guy in the state. We got to get the hell out of the state. Man, I had a guy on here uh, a few weeks ago, and I asked him that question, and he was talking about uh, – he's a black guy, and he was talking about a black room in North Carolina, and he said that he bombed so badly that the host or producer came over to him and said, I don't know what you're doing, but what you need to do is go find the tallest building, jump off of it, and then take out a gun and shoot yourself on the way down. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, they, they're not keeping secrets. No, no, they will let you know. And the, I, I will say uh, they were uh, a lot of people walking out and I don't know what it was. I, the next day I was out at TJ Maxx with my wife. We were shopping and somebody walked up and was like, hey, are you a comedian? And I did, I was hoping they I, I at the time it was a whole six hours in the past. So I wasn't even thinking about I was thinking about maybe they know me from this open mic or these shows I run. I was like, yeah, I'm a comedian. I was like, yeah, I was at Arlington last night. And I was like. Oh, okay. And <laughs> there were I, I don't but they were like, Yeah, I don't know what everyone else was mad about. You were fine. And oh, there then, you go. <laughs> yeah. I don't wow. I don't know what it there's always gonna be somebody no but and I think it goes both ways. Even when you crush it, there's gonna be somebody in the room that if you talk to is gonna go like, Ah, you weren't you weren't my favorite. And if you if you completely eat it, there's gonna be some guy going like, I didn't get it. It was fine. So Yeah, I opened a show at I mean it was a bar in a small town. On the opening day of hunting season. So at the front of the bar where I'm performing maybe six feet away, uh, mm -hmm. there were four guys who were there just to drink. And mm -hmm. the bartender slash manager got them to buy tickets to the show 
she bet them they wouldn't stay or something like that. Like, uh, no, she was going to give them a free drink if they stayed the entire show. Yep. And I'm like, oh, boy. So <laughs> I, I, I did OK. But like at a certain point, they were talking so loudly that I was like, all right, you know, I, I you know, I'm like, hey, I don't care if you don't like me, but I guarantee you the people who are coming after me, you know, if you're respectful, you'll love them. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I came out of there and and one of the guys, a buddy of mine says, hey, man, you did great. You know, like that's the best you could do. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, we all get it. After that show, some other guy came over and goes, do you have any albums for sale? Oh, and I'm like, one, that's incredibly sweet. Two, uh-huh. no. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like if I had albums for sale, I would have done better. Like you understand mm-hmm. how that works. But it's like yeah. that got me through. Like I didn't give a shit about that set anymore. I'm like, oh, somebody asked me if I had an album. Like, I'll take that flattery. I'm like, yeah, I really am a comedian. Thank you. Like, mm-hmm. I know. Like, like so if I'm at TJ Maxx, I can say with confidence that, yes, I am a comedian. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> so how do you recover from a from a bad set? I mean, is it just a matter of like, ah, fuck it. I've been here before. No, it, I, 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 the, the thing that I think you take away from a bad set is you try to watch the tape. You try to go. You 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 try to listen to what you can. In ter- I I tried, I, especially when I was performing live. I made a point to set my phone to record. You listen back and you you try to figure out. Okay, is this? Am I talking over them? Am I not directly engaging them? At what point are they disconnecting with what I'm saying? Is it the material? Is it the delivery? I I, I think in many ways there that old Sun Tzu quote there. There's one lesson in victory and a thousand in defeat. Anytime you miss, all that is is an opportunity to go, okay, what am I – this is a this is direct failure I can reference and draw statistical inference from. Where did I come up short and how can I guarantee to never do it again? Uh, what lesson can I immediately take from this uh, objective failure? You said your education is engineering, right? Something like that? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that helps you uh, – analyze your set and and do that because it seems very scientific it definitely i think that i like presenting an argument a lot some people say academic papers are unreadable but i do i i think that the formula of of an academic paper is always like hey here's what i'm presenting and then here's why i'm presenting it and here's uh, the thing I just presented, and especially if you present absurdity in a way that is uniformly logical, people will, uh, for a moment, think, oh, he 100% believes the things he's saying. That makes it funnier than if you were joking. This is crazy. Like, if, I, I, in my experience, people tend to vibe. Uh, people love uh, jokey comics. People love people that are telling jokes for sure. But I think people uh, vibe even harder on, oh, they let a legitimately crazy person on stage. Yeah. Awesome. This is great. He, I, I hope he believe it's the, I mean, it's the same thing with pro wrestling. Is there, there are definitely people that are like, oh, this guy's a great athlete and it's super fun to watch him go on this performance. But on some mental level, it's possible that the people that are enjoying it the most are the people that are like, no, this is, this is all real. This is insane. I love it. So yeah, you need a, you need some marks. You need a few marks in the crowd. You need a few. Uh, you, you, I mean, smarks are probably the people that buy the T-shirts and stuff, but marks are the people that clap the loudest and cheer the hardest and chant and try to start chants. And it will cry if, if their, their guy doesn't win. You know? Oh, for sure. For sure. If you could open for any comedian going today, like let's just say Carlin is still dead. You know, we won't bring Carlin him back. Dead. 
Okay. Ooh. So if you could open for any comedian today, who would it be? Uh, man. Uh, on that list is Kinane, is probably Mulaney for sure, is uh, Maria Bamford. Uh, I think like... And this is something that I've acknowledged after nine years, unless I get incredibly lucky, probably not going to happen, but still on like the, on the, on the starry end of a, of a, of a daydream is opening for like Chappelle or Patton Oswalt is still like the very, very top of who I'd love to work with and just be able to, you know, the same way if I could open for Patton Oswalt and the same thing with Bronel or where he's like, Hey, I have to cut out. I have, uh, you know, I got to raise my kid. Great set. That would be dream achieved forever. Well, I, I know people who have opened for Patton and like, it doesn't seem like, you know, obviously it's not the easiest thing to do, but it doesn't seem like that's an impossible goal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, Chappelle, maybe, you know, like he seems like, I don't know who opens for him. I mean, I see Chappelle and I think, oh, well, Louis CK is opening for him today. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Literally, well, I'm not going to be, you know, on that level could get literally anybody he ever wanted on any night to go open for him. And he's also at the point now where he can perform where like he get, he can perform in his own neighborhood in Ohio and still draw 300 people. Yeah. Just, yeah, no, literally evades the traditional comedy rules of supply and demand because he can supply his comedy anywhere and there's an immediate demand for it. Yeah. It almost seems unfair in a way. Like, like he doesn't need an opener, you know, like, like Chappelle is effectively eliminated jobs. In comedy mm-hmm. and, you know, but can't fault him. I mean, he's a fucking great comedian. Yes. But I think for me, it would, I, I love Mulaney. I, I think Birbigley would be there for me. Oh, and, for sure. You know, because I just think that I would love to be in a green room bouncing stuff off with Birbiglia and, and see how his mind works. I mean, I'll watch everything he does. I'll listen to, you know, his podcast and I'm just a, a sponge for him. But to be in the green room with him has to be, I'd be hesitant to go in there. Because I don't want to, you know, ruin my fantasy. But oh, sure. I yeah. think that you know it would be a, an amazing time to mm-hmm. just talk comedy with him. Yes, absolutely yeah. true. And there's always Seinfeld. Oh yeah, He's a, I mean, he is my Chappelle. You know, like, oh yeah, incredible writer of every conceivable capacity. Virtually invented observational comedy. No, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Seinfeld. Well, dude, uh, I'll let you go, but I, I really appreciate it uh, being out here, and and it's great getting to know you. Uh, do you have anything to plug? Sure. At Wes Corwin on Instagram, at West Cornfield on Twitter. Find me on Facebook, Wes Corwin. You can find my page. And I am doing a series of weekly shows on Thursday uh, on Zoom uh, to try to benefit Texans that are suffering post-winter uh, storm. Uh, trying to raise money for mutual aid organizations. It's called We Bought a Zoom, and you can find that through my Facebook page, Thursdays, 8 p.m., featuring Texan comics. Sweet, dude. Again, thank you so much, man. It was great to get to know you. Absolutely, man. Cool. All right, I'll talk to you in a bit. Peeling back my sunburnt skin I'll wait outside your bedroom I hope they let me in